9, uh, verse number 11. We're going to read verses 11 through 15. And then when you set back down, uh, then you can keep your Bible for later, a little bit deeper into the service. We're going to conclude out of the 13th chapter. But in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, I hear pages turning. That's a good thing. We're not all just digital here. Is that right? And, uh, but in the 11th verse here, the author says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Notice he said, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. That's so powerful, isn't it? And then this 15th verse just kind of is a little addendum. And when you are in the book of Hebrews in this particular subject matter, there's neither really a good beginning or ending except for chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 13, verse 19 or 20, wherever the book concludes. And so he says, And for this cause, for this reason, he is the mediator of the New Testament, the New Covenant, that by means of death for the redemption of of the transgressions that were under the first testament, the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What a promise from God for us. Because I don't know about you, I needed redemption from the transgressions that I had created. Though I was not a Jew, I was still bound by an oral law, not necessarily that written code, but by an oral law that I had breached because I was born into sin and I had sinned. But thanks be unto God for God's unspeakable gift that Jesus Christ has provided redemption for us here today. Now today, with that passage in mind, I'm going to talk to you about the sacrifice of praise the sacrifice of praise, and we'll see if there is a correlation. Father, we love you, and we're so grateful today for this time to have read the Word of God audibly and publicly. For Paul told Timothy, he said, Till I come, give attention to reading. And we believe we're following that pattern, God, today. But now, we are totally dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, for without the work of the Holy Spirit, God, then as Paul again said, we would be a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. My words would have no uh, value, no merit, and they would fall on deafened ears unless the Holy Spirit takes these words and writes them on the tablet of our hearts here today. God, I believe what Paul said, suffer the word of exhortation. God, allow the word of exhortation. May the people allow, Father God, me to become the oracles of God. For that's what Peter said, that in this moment, God, I would literally become the oracles of God. You would take this moment and you would speak through my voice, God, and you would write it then upon the fleshly tablet of the heart here today. We love you and we're grateful for this moment. Speak to us today about the sacrifice of praise. It's in Jesus' name and everybody said amen. Thank you so much. 
One thing, and there's a reason why I chose this particular passage of Scripture here to read for the context to help lead into what I want to talk to you about today is to show you the necessity for something. This necessity is understanding. Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I know I don't pronounce words, biblical words correctly, but I just have a certain flair about certain area, ways that I pronounce them, and so it's Ecclesiastes um, to me when I see that in the scriptures. But Solomon said, in all of your getting, get understanding. You know what we need? We need the Holy Spirit to open our understanding as it relates to who God is, because we only see and know God through the revelation of his son. Remember, God had chosen to mask himself, to hide himself, first in heaven and later in a tabernacle and then in a temple. But the beginning of the book of Hebrews says that God has revealed himself to us through his son, who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And thus we desire to see and to know him. And you may remember that prior to Jesus' ascension after his resurrection, when meeting with his disciples, Luke records that there was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit wrought in the heart and the understanding of the apostles, that the disciples that would become the apostles, where he opened their understanding. It's a supernatural work because without that supernatural work, then you'll be just like the Jews. For Paul said there is a veil on the mind of the Jew until this day that, do not, that does not allow them to see clearly. Though they hold the Torah in their hands, though they hold the prophets in their hands, though they're read in the synagogue, of course, going back to those days on the Sabbath day, yet still they could not see nor understand. And so we need the Holy Spirit to reveal unto us today spiritual truth. And the point that I want to draw your attention to for just a moment is Judaism, Judaism with the Torah, which is simply the Hebrew word for the law, the law of Moses, the five first books of the Old Testament, as you and I are more familiar with calling them, to include also the prophets and the Psalms or the writings. And you may remember in that same passage in Luke 24, that was the pattern, the way that the Hebrews divided the Old Covenant. They broke it up in that three categories, the law and the prophets and the writings or the Psalms. And, that, and, and so we know that Judaism is a very, alongside of the scriptures and with its traditions, is a very complex religious system. Very, very complex. That an uneducated hillbilly like myself uh, can struggle even to navigate uh, a course through it. But the thing that we must not forget, as difficult as it had become and overwhelmed by even the traditions of men in the days of Jesus, it was still Judaism that gave us the Messiah. Through that, through that complex system that includes the scriptures, then we get a revelation first of the coming Messiah, then we get a picture through the gospel of that the fact that the Messiah was present and now through the writings of the apostles we get to look back upon his work and then his continual ministry. And so to fully understand, we have to realize that the teachings of the apostles are born from their history and their training within Judaism. If you're going to understand anything about God and anything about the kingdom of God and anything about the scriptures, there comes a moment in your life 
when you've got to, you've got to commit yourself to saying, Father, I've got to understand this more fully. I've got to know this more, clear, more carefully and more, more accurately because if you don't, you'll have an elementary level, an elementary knowledge of God. That will be the extent of it. You won't understand the fullness of Jesus' coming. So you have to purpose in your heart. You have to seek after wisdom. Right, You must pursue wisdom. I believe that all ignorance can easily be corrected through first repentance before God and asking the Lord for understanding. Right, And so to fully understand what the apostles wrote and the revelation that they received and that they gave to us, we must, now listen, I want to say that carefully because Paul prayed that prayer. You say, Pastor, is that really that important? Yes, it is. Paul said this in Ephesians, the third chapter, writing almost exclusively to a, uh, uh, an, a uh, Gentile audience. He said, he said, I pray that when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And so look at that, what the apostle said. Paul said, now I've already shared many times, and Joe's quoted it many times, Ephesians, the first chapter, the 17th verse, where he said, I pray God give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know the hope of his calling. But he said in the third chapter, he said, he said I pray that when you read, you, that God will give you understanding in my knowledge uh, of the revelation of the mystery of Christ, which was previously hidden but is now being made known. So in order for us to understand what they wrote and the revelation that they received and gave, you and I must to a degree understand the culture and the context in which they received the revelation. Yes, let's go a little bit farther with that. Let me just say this. Here's a common uh, a wordage that we might use in the church. We say often, Jesus' blood is our atoning sacrifice. We say the redemption from our sin is in Jesus' blood. But if you have little or no understanding of Judaism with the law, the Torah, and the sacrifices, then even that simple truth that you and I have hung the, uh, the, the entirety of our faith upon might have little or no merit or meaning to you if you don't understand that there was a law given that declared us all as sinful, that demanded sacrifice to allow sinful man to have access to the knowledge of and the presence of God, and that that sacrifice was bullocks and goats and pigeons and turtle doves and a means for mankind to approach God through the priesthood, but that Jesus came and that his blood became the ultimate and atoning sacrifice upon the altar, not the altar in Jerusalem, but the altar in heaven, then you and I, if you don't know anything about it, then I can stand up here and I can preach about Jesus' redeeming blood, and that will be it. It will go right past you, right? So there's a moment where you've got to say, you know, if I'm going to understand this, I've got to understand a little measure of the law with its type, and then later the gospel with maybe perhaps the fulfillment, which would be called the anti-type. And then we also get to look at the priesthood and the temple and the sacrifices. And I know the imagery is rich. It's, it's prophetic imagery. And I tell you what, I get very excited when I look at it. And I know the apostles themselves did as well, that when the Holy Spirit gave them revelation and they began 
to understand that this system that had been in play for over 2,000 years, that the countless lambs that had been slain, the countless bullocks that had been slain, the blood that had run so freely from the altar in Jerusalem was to typify the coming day when Jesus Christ would shed his blood on the cross. And all the imagery of the old covenant, even from examples like this, the prophet Jonah, when he was swallowed up in a whale's belly for three days and three nights, he was hid in the lower parts of the earth until the whale spit him out on the ground again on the third day, that that was a type of the day that Jesus Christ would come up out of the earth. Can you imagine when the revelation was given to the apostles, when they all of a sudden, everything that they had been trained in, everything that they had studied from their earliest of days when they had gone through their grammar school, and the, the Torah was their only uh, you know, book that they were, they were used in their education in their process of developing them academically, and that they suddenly had this revelation that it was all to point them. That's what Paul would later write in Galatians. He said, the law was our schoolmaster to point us unto Jesus. And when you see that, then all of a sudden you look at the law entirely differently. And not, you don't just see it in bondage. Yes, it can bring us under bondage because it produces in us an awareness of our sin, a sin that cannot be alleviated by the blood of a goat or a bullet. But when you begin to see that it's filled with the imagery of the coming Messiah, then you will read it all together differently again. You will celebrate and rejoice over it because it's an image of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I love what the writer of Hebrews said in the second chapter. He said, but we would see Jesus. I just like to see Jesus, don't you? I like to smell his fragrance. I like to believe that I'm right at his feet like Mary hearing his word, that I'm just in the sound, I'm in the room where the sound of his voice can be heard. I, you could take away my sight and I could still see him. You could take away my hearing and I could still hear him. You could take away my ability to feel touch and I could still feel him. Come on, somebody, because of his glory and his presence when he's made known to me through the word of God. And so we reach into the epistles. Listen, I have to say this. We have to be very, very careful when we reach into the epistles and either secure or snatch for, uh, just for the sense of uh, being a, uh, uh, a hillbilly moment for me. I thought that's really what we do. We just reach into the word and we snatch out a doctrinal truth that's out of its context, Dr. Brassfield. It's out of its context, and then we try to make application to our lives without if we don't first understand its original intent. What was the intent of the author? Who was he writing it to? What's the first application? Because without doing so, then you and I can never gain the fullness of the truth that that passage of Scripture holds, the content that it belongs. The book of Hebrews, unknown author, unknown to us, only known by God. If you take the time to either read it in its entirety, which I encourage you to do so, or glean it, as I did over the latter couple of days, the writer of the book of Hebrews makes the biblical case. Listen to the case that he makes for Christ's superiority over Moses. I tell you, Moses was a powerful man of God, right? But I tell you, he was not superior to Jesus. He makes the case for Christ's superiority over Aaron, the very first high priest. He makes the case for Christ's continual priesthood as a priesthood under the order of Melchizedek in contrast to the priesthood that was serving in the Jerusalem temple at the time the author writes this epistle. 
because those priests would later die. and They would have to fold up their garment and they would have to appoint a new high priest. But this man ever liveth, come on somebody, to make intercession for you and I. He tasted death one time, but now he ever lives. He has a perpetual priesthood. The author, if you read back and forth here in, the, in this, uh, this wonderful epistle, he makes the argument for the superiority over, of the heavenly tabernacle or the heavenly temple over the earthly temple in Jerusalem. That there is a heavenly tabernacle and a heavenly temple that far overshadows the, uh, the earthly temple. He makes the superiority, uh, the case for the superiority of the new covenant and its promises in contrast with the old covenant and its promises. The old covenant was filled with the promises of God. But the Bible says that you and I have a new covenant that's based upon, come on now, better promises. He makes the argument, now I'm just kind of gleaning and surmising this for you for just a moment. He makes, I feel the Holy Spirit writing something. There's a deep doctrinal truth that God wants to show you here in just a few moments. He makes the, superior, he makes the, 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 uh, the argument of the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice over the sacrifices that the law demanded. That the Offering of the sin offering or the trespass offering, the daily offering or the offering that was associated with the feast, or even the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest went in once. Even the author in the 10th chapter begins to address that, the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. Because there was a continual need to make offering. Because the offering could not fully atone for sin. Because the power and the virtue of the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat was not sufficient currency in God's redemptive plan. It took precious blood. It took something of greater value. Something that was so intrinsic that it was contained only in one place. In all the earth could you find blood that had the ability to reach all the way back to Adam's transgression and wash away all the sin debt of Adam and then had the power and the potency to reach all the way forward to the last man ever born of a woman born under the curse of Adam and wash away his sin debt to God there was only one place where that price could be found and that was in the atoning precious blood of Jesus Christ no wonder the author Peter said it's more precious than gold it's more precious than silver. And there's a superiority of that sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. And lastly, he makes the superiority argument of the changed life. Of a changed life in the new covenant in comparison to a changed life under the old covenant. Because the argument that he makes here is this. He said that the if their sins had really been forgiven, they would have no longer a consciousness of sins. <clears throat> they would be able to worship God, being having their minds cleansed from uh, a consciousness of sin and cleansed from dead works. And the author goes on to say even this. He said that God had something better, something better that without us, they would not yet be made perfect. So he makes the argument that even the worshiper not just the system, not just Christ being the satisfaction of the system to produce redemption, but the outcome, the worshiper under the old covenant and his relationship with God would still be bound to communion through the temple 
and the intercession of the high priest on the day of atonement. And the Holy Spirit would sat, would sit, excuse me, upon the ark of the, uh, uh, the covenant of the mercy seat. But now you and I, we become the temple of the Most High God. And the very Spirit of God that hovered between the cherubim's wings right there on the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where God said, that's where I sit at. Now God makes His throne. Come on, somebody. Now God makes His throne right here in our hearts and in our lives. The whole, I feel Jesus in here today, don't you, church family? And it's bound to your understanding First of Judaism, and then the revelation that comes by the Holy Spirit to show us what Christ has accomplished. And so I'd like to go a little bit farther. My observation is I was contemplating something. My observation concerning the book of Hebrews concludes that the author who addresses the priesthood and the sacrifice many times in the 13 chapters does not make a correlation between you and I and the priesthood. And I want you to think about that for a moment because often there are passages of Scripture where God is making a correlation. Now, I want to say this again. My observation, this is mine. I, 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 I'm not going to try to defend it with anyone. I'm just going to preach it. I conclude that the author does not make a correlation between you and I and the priesthood. Now, we know that later in Scripture, you and I are called a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I know that. I know that John, Joe was quoting it earlier, Revelation 1. John said, God has made us kings and priests unto God. So I understand that principle. But I'm simply saying the author of Hebrews if you look closely, I do not believe he's making a correlation between the existing priesthood and you and I as New Testament priests. We know that comes later. I believe the context of Hebrews is we are the worshipers who are bringing our offering and our sacrifice to God. But Jesus is now our high priest who mediates between God and us. Thus, in this context, when you and I offer sacrifice, we're not offering sacrifice as priests, but we're offering sacrifice as worshipers. As the, in the old covenant, someone would bring the offering to the temple where they were met by a priest who would offer the sacrifice on behalf of the worshiper. And then again, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make the sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And thus it seems to me in the way that I read the book of Hebrews, though you and I know that you and I are called priests by the apostles at a later date and a later time, but in contrast to the temple in Jerusalem, you and I are noted as the worshipers. And today we worship via or through or by the high priest, Jesus Whoever lives to mediate between God and us. Man, that's good right there. So the deep revelation of Hebrews is this. That as worshipers, because of his blood, we can go into a place that only the priest could go previously. And actually, that's an earthly shadow. If you study deeper in the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, the author says that in the Old Testament, the covenant, the priest went into the holy place, 
But then he said that the high priest went into the most holy place only one time a year. So the priest went into the holy place one time a year. But into the most holy place, the, or excuse me, the priest went daily into the holy place, but the high priest went in annually into the most holy place. But I love the choice of words by the writer of Hebrews. He said, but the holiest of all, but the holiest of all, now he says this. He said that you and I have access to the holiest of all because we don't come by virtue of the blood of a bullock or the blood of a goat. We don't come because we stand in the backdrop of the Aaronic priesthood, but we come by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, a perpetual offering. Come on, somebody who once and for all offered himself, and now you and I have access to the throne room of what? Of grace, right? And, and so when we read, then uh, we get to know that we have access to the Father as a worshiper whose sin is forgiven. You know what? I want to say this today. I know my sins, as the writer said, were as scarlet, but now they're white like wool, I know that we can say things like this, that I'm a sinner. You know what? I want to say this and add clarity. I was a sinner. But now I'm sanctified by the blood of Jesus, that God's cleansed me from all unrighteousness. He's made me new in the kingdom of God. And I have access to his presence, not by anything that I have done, but by everything that he did by virtue of his shed blood. So listen, we're going to jump to the end of the story, the 13th chapter, and just glean it very quickly to arrive at one particular verse. The reason why I wanted to say that, I borrowed, I thought of Dr. Brassfield this morning. Dr. Brassfield, you used to say this, you have the longest introductions and the shortest sermons of any preacher around. And I wanted to borrow that today. The reason why I wanted to develop this is because if you don't understand that principle, then you don't understand the concluding remarks made in the book of Hebrews. If you don't understand the context of which the author has been making an argument for the preceding 12 chapters concerning the superiority of Christ and his eternal sacrifice over the sacrificial system that Judaism demanded. Does that make sense? And so now, now you and I can read the conclusion in its proper context, and let's glean it because we're headed to one verse of Scripture. So think of this now. As you read this, here's the exhortation, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile. If you simply know that your sins are forgiven by Christ Jesus, and you've chosen not to trust in an antiquated system that, yes, was antiquated even at the time that the author is writing this, though the temple was still standing on Mount Zion in, uh, or Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem. Though it was still standing, remind you of what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. Come on. It is finished. The sacrificial demand of God had now been met. The blood of Jesus had been spilt on the cross of Calvary. And so you and I, by cause of his blood, when we put our faith in his blood, then we can have our consciousness cleansed from dead works, and we can serve the living God. 
we can serve him with a clear conscience because he's declared us righteous. No, say, Pastor, I don't feel righteous. It's not about your feelings. It's about your faith. By faith, you, you have secured the promise. He declared you righteous in his eyes. So by faith, you walk in it and exercise it every day. Has nothing to do whether or not you feel righteous, feel holy, feel unjust. That's Your feelings will deceive you. You can't walk by your feelings. You've got to walk by your faith. And your faith must be settled upon the word of God. And so here in this passage here, he then speaks to us as believers who understand that we have access to God's grace. He said, let brotherly love continue. First one, he said, just let it continue. Thank God for the sweet fragrance of fellowship in this house. Brotherly love, care for one another. As a believer, it's my responsibility. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. Oh, I got real quiet in here now. Let brotherly love continue. Let's go farther. Then he said, and in the process of everyday life, make sure that you're entertaining strangers. And he doesn't mean to bring them in and set them in front of a DVD and turn a television set on for them. He's simply saying to take care of, to receive strangers. Because if you're not careful, you may not only, uh, if you kind of shun someone, God may have sent a ministering spirit to you. God may have sent somebody that came with an answer from heaven and all they needed was just a little bit of kindness out of your hand and and maybe through that, God was going to release a blessing on your life, right? And you missed the moment. Isn't that a shame that that God would send uh, an eternal, I know you'll like this, Billy, an eternal UPS man. Come on, somebody with a gift of grace to bring to your house, but because you didn't have time to receive him, he had to take that package of grace back to heaven. Come on, that's the context that he's writing from. He said, then remember those that are in bonds as those that are bound with them. Remember those that are in prison and that have suffered adversity. Listen, especially those that are, were in prison for their faith. That's the context that he's writing from. Then he said in the fourth verse, marriage is honorable in all and the bed is undefiled. And so a husband and wife can have marital relations uh, and be cleansed in the eyes of God. You don't have to go down into the, uh, uh, the baptism tank and get a cleansing after you have marital relations to be clean before God. The bed is pure. Is that all right for us to talk about that for just a moment? I didn't decide to do. The writer did. He wanted you to know that God has blessed and sanctified that relationship. Whoremongers and adulterers, God's going to... Judge, let's go on down, fifth verse. Let your conversation, which means your lifestyle, be without covetousness. He said, and be content with the things that you have. God's promised to take care of you. Listen, don't let despair overwhelm you. You lose your job, trust God for another one, right? Don't be despair. Listen, we can live a lot lighter when we need to. God will make a way. Look what he said. God is faithful. He's not gonna leave you. He's not going to forsake you. Paul had later or earlier written, and he said, if you've got the basic necessities of life, just be content. God will make a way for you. He'll provide for you. Sixth verse, he said, you and I can boldly say with confidence and with authority, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my sustainer. Can you say that with me today? I think that's powerful to say. My help cometh from above. Well, I look to God. I don't look to the federal government. Right, I look to God. My God sustains me. My God keeps me. I preached several weeks ago, if God doesn't protect you, there's no protection. 
right? If God doesn't protect you, you can't get enough weapons in your house to protect you. You got to have his grace, his goodness, his kindness. Why should we fear what man can do unto us? We are only fears for God, a holy reverence for God. The seventh verse, remember them which have the rule over you. Apostolic leaders, particularly, remember them. And notice what he said. They have the rule or the authority, the spiritual leadership over you. Why? Because they've spoken to you the word of God. Notice the reason why he said it. Whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation or the end of their life. What he's saying is this. Many of the apostles have already died to take the word of God to you. And so then when you hold the scriptures and when you hear the scriptures, understand the sacrifice that has been made. Remember this, church family, even in this context, it was the Jews that were persecuting the Christians at that time. I know that later when the Christianity outnumbered Judaism, then the Christians persecuted the Jews. This is even apart from the persecution of the Roman Empire. This is simply the Jews through Judaism were persecuting the Christians to include especially the apostles and the author here is saying don't forget Peter and don't forget James and don't forget John don't forget these men that walked with Christ that received the word of God many of them have suffered at the hands of evil doers just so that you could hear the truth that Jesus Christ died that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day and now you have access unto the eternal presence of God don't forget those laborers Man, that's a good word right there. The, ver- the eighth verse, he said, look at this. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I've quoted that a hundred, hundreds of times in many applications. But if I can put you in its proper context today, to go back to the argument for the theme, don't, don't get distracted on me. We're just about to hit the apex here in just a moment. But the actual application is this, is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. That's the application. You say, wait a minute, he was yesterday, yes, before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was a lamb slain for the foundation of the world. He's the same today. He died on the cross. He'll be the same tomorrow. He died to satisfy God's justice that needed a payment. It was Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. It is finished. I love the ninth verse. Look at this with me. So don't be carried about with divers and strange doctrines. Don't be distracted with things that don't have true meat and virtue. For it's a good thing that your heart be established with what? With grace. Let your heart be established with grace. In this comparison, we must again note the worshiper and the priesthood. In the temple sacrifices, the priest and his family could eat a portion of some of the sacrifices, particularly the peace offerings to which we will allude in just a moment. And the eating of this sacrifice would bind the worshiper to the sacrifice and the sacrifice to the altar and the altar to the temple and the temple to the priesthood. In essence, a communion was being formed, a Fellowship was being formed. And what the author here is saying is that be mindful. Your fellowship with God through Christ. Let your heart be established with grace, not with meat, not with those meat offerings and those meal offerings, and not with anything that was offered on that altar, but with what was offered on God's altar. Because, see, you and I, 10th verse, we have an altar that they that still trust 
the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem for redemption, they don't have a right to eat. Think about that. With all their education, with keeping every requirement of the law, the author here is saying it does not matter if they've kept the law from the earliest of days until they part this life, that they have no right to eat if they're trusting in that altar for redemption because redemption's only found in Jesus Christ. That's the argument that he has made throughout the context. The 11th through the 14th verse, we read it very quickly. He said, for the bodies, I love this, the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus, wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So what are we to do? We're going to go forth unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Listen to this. Comparatively, the carcasses of those animals that were burned outside of the camp means they were also burned outside of the temple and they were burned outside of the city. Jesus, in like manner, suffered outside the city, outside the temple. We go to him there to obtain our redemption. We go outside the temple. We go outside the tabernacle. We go outside of Judaism. We go outside there. Jesus Christ on the cross satisfied God's redemptive demand. So here on earth, you and I no longer have a specific temple or altar or city. We're strangers and pilgrims. We don't have to fly thousands of miles across the waters. We don't have to make an appointment to get access to the temple grounds in Jerusalem to be able to worship God. We don't have to ask a priest to go in and communicate with God for us. There's not one piece of stone or granite, not one piece of masonry or a building or an edifice anywhere that can keep us or that we have to go to in order to worship God. But you can be driving down the road and you can enter into his presence with thanksgiving. And you can enter his gates with praise. You can get up in the morning. You can step out of your bed and step over into a throne room of grace. And walk right into the presence of God. And you can do so boldly and confidently because you know that your sins are forgiven. And so you say, Pastor, if I'm going to go into God's presence as a worshiper, i got to have something to present to God. And that's the completion of the argument. The conclusion of the argument is that, yes, if you as a worshiper are going to go before the Lord, notice in the 15th verse what he tells us to bring into his presence. There's something that God still demands. I want to walk you down with it for just a moment. Look how he starts this. I love it. He said it's by him. Just be reminded of this today. It's by Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. It's all by Jesus. It was by and through his atoning blood. It was by and through his eternal sacrifice. It was his completed sacrifice, and it is his eternal priesthood right now. It's not about you. It's not about your effort. It's not about your education. It's not about whether you're unrighteous or righteous. It's about what he accomplished on the cross. It's by Jesus. I enter in through the veil of what? Of his flesh when I enter into the presence of God. That's what the author is saying. By him, what are we to do? By him, so I'm going to bring an offering. I'm going to offer what? I'm going to offer something, but not as a priest, not in this context. I'm offering as a worshiper, but I'm offering, listen, here's the, this is the whole, this is it right here. This is the, the point of the whole message is hanging right here on the balance right here. Here it is right here. Here's the tipping point. 
I'm going to offer it with the revelation and the understanding that my sins are forgiven forever. I know that bothers some of you. Because when you sin tomorrow, you want to go nail Jesus up on the cross again. But I came along to tell you the blood that was shed 2,000 years ago has the potency in it that forgave you of your sin today, yesterday, and... Oh, I feel Jesus right there. Come on, somebody. And so look at this. He said, so you got to know this. In all you're getting, get what? Get understanding. Because now you can offer the thing that God desires. What is the thing that he desires? The sacrifice of praise. I want to address that as I conclude today. Listen to this. I've preached a lot about the sacrifice of praise. And I understand. And I, and I went back to get some stimulus for this message many years ago in the late 80s. T.D. Jakes preached a message at Dominion Camp Meeting in Columbus, Ohio, at World Harvest Church, Pastor Rod Parsley's church. It was called The Sacrifice of Praise. It's been around for now on 30 years, and I've heard it many times, hadn't heard it in many, many years. Went back to listen to it to just get a, a renewed stimulus. And though it was powerful, and though there was a virtue applied to it, there was a little bit of it, just to be honest, that was not true to the context that is written right here because brother Jakes was making this point he was making this point right here that you've given and you've gone through a lot and yet despite all that you're going through you still give God praise now I believe that God deserves our praise even when we don't feel like giving to him and I know that when I preach on Sunday mornings I'm preaching to some folks that have been hurt and abused I know that I'm preaching to some that have gone through the trauma of divorce. Some of you have buried your own children. Some of you've got children that have estranged and they're now out in the world on, on, on drugs and alcohol and your heart is heavy. And I understand there is a proper context to say, despite all that, offer the sacrifice of praise. I understand, but that's not the author's original intent. What the author's original intent is this right here, is to let you know that you can offer praise to God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, that the blood was sufficient. Your conscience can be cleansed from all dead works. You have the right to his presence. You have the right to enter in because he accepted you when he accepted Oh, I'm preaching better than y'all shouting right there. I know that's a truth that you, that you haven't caught just yet, but you've got to. The context is you are a worshiper, and because your sins are purged, your conscience is clean, and the one sacrifice for sin forever has made you at peace with God. And so you don't have to bring in a bullock, and you don't even have to bring in a goat. Let me go one farther than that to take you back into the history of Judaism as I'm closing this message right now. The author is reminding them of a thank offering, just to be honest, when he said, give thanks to his name. And by saying give thanks to his name, it draws our attention back to the category of offerings in the Old Testament called peace offerings. And the peace offerings were divided in threefold. One was a vow offering, one was a free will offering, and the other one was a thank offering. And in those offerings, yes, you brought in meat. You might bring in a bullock or you might bring in some type of animal. The animal was slain, blood was applied, but it also included leavened bread and also unleavened bread. And there was 
oil applied and the priest ate part of it and this was the only offering that you as the worshiper could take a portion of it back and you could worship God and you could eat and participate. Again, there's that communion of the entirety. And, but at the same time, at the heart of a peace offering was this right here. It, in order to offer a peace offering, you had to be clean. I got to talk about that for a moment. I got to run. You know, I stretched out this morning, Jojo, like you and I were going to play basketball. Because I knew, I said, my God, this gets on me today. I may have to run in here. Because listen, listen to this principle right here. This is so good. In days gone by, if you sinned when you stood before God, you were sinful and guilty. And you had an offering, a sin offering or a trespass offering. And you had to offer that to God in order to be accepted unto the Lord. To be declared clean. The peace offering, you're already declared clean. So you can't offer it and be unclean. Because that would be an abomination to God. So if you offer the thank offering, which is a part of the peace offering, then you are testifying that you got the knowledge that God accepted the sacrifice. And so when the Hebrew came, and said, you know what, I'm just going to offer. I just want to give God thanks today. I'm clean. I've not committed any certain sin recently. I've had a sin offering made on my behalf, and I'm walking according to the dictates of the wall. So for this moment, I'm at peace with God, so I make my thank offering, and I praise God. The writer is remembering that offering when he's telling us that every time we come into his presence... Every time you come into his presence, you've got the knowledge that Jesus' blood satisfied God's just demand on the cross of Calvary. You don't bring in a bullock. You don't bring in a goat. You don't bring in a fried cake. You don't bring in barley. You don't bring in wheat. You don't bring in frankincense, and you don't bring in oil. The only thing God said to bring me was to give me a praise, give me a thanks. Lift up your hands. Won't you stand up with me today and just say, you know what? I feel like I ought to worship God in this house today. I I just want to lift up my voice and say, God, I want to thank you for your presence. I want to thank you for your grace. I want to thank you for your goodness today. God, I want to bless you today, God, because of the goodness of the Lord. Hallelujah. It's the fruit of our lips. The fruit of our lips. We give God praise. We give the Lord praise. We give the Lord praise. Aaron, come on back up and join me on the platform if you would. Come on, church family. Let me say this as I close. Look at this passage as we close, that 15th verse. He said, this is the one offering that God's asking of you today. It's the fruit of your lips. The fruit of your lips giving thanks to his name. Now, let me say that. Let's, as, as we close with this revelation, the comparative, once again, is the worshipers under Judaism often brought the fruit of their labor, such as weed and barley. But God now says, just open your mouth and give him praise. Come on, did you hear that? And so listen, can I ask you this question? In this context, can you really be considered a worshiper unless you open your mouth? <laughs> As a result of having the revelation that your sins are forgiven and that by Him you give God glory. Can you really sit there quiet? Can you really have your mouth muted and say, I'm a worshiper? No, no, you can't. 
Because God said, if I'm going to label you a worshiper, I need to hear something out of your mouth. I need you to hear something. I don't need something in your hand. I don't need something in your pocket. I just need something in your mouth that says, God, I love you, and I'm so thankful for Jesus today. I'm so thankful for the blood. I'm thankful for the grace. I'm thankful that my sins were a scarlet, but now they're white like wool, God. Father, I worship you in this house. God, let the spirit of the worshiper fall on me today. God, I give you the fruit of my lips. Come on, I give you the fruit of my lips.